0: Well, last week we uh, looked at one of the most challenging portions of Scripture, I think it's fair to say. Um, There's lots of great commentators and scholars that have uh, spent hours pondering and deliberating over this portion of Scripture. Um, But once again, I, I really feel after spending a long time reading lots of commentaries and going through so many different things and just looking at the text, looking at the context of what we've been reviewing in Hebrews, that the whole thrust of what the writer is trying to say. To these Jewish believers is they should be growing in grace. They should be growing as believers, not coming back under the things of the law. It's the same argument that Paul uses to the Galatian believers. And the chapter starts in chapter 6, leaving the principles of the doctrine of Christ. He goes on, let us go on to perfection. Yeah, let's not spend our time on the basics, we should be growing. And he's already made the illusion at the end of chapter 5 that this group of believers that he's writing to ought to be teachers themselves by now. And yet he's having to go back and lay down the foundations with them. I'm using this example of milk and solid food and saying, really, you know, you should have grown to the stage, you're on solid food by now, but you still need milk just like a baby, you've not progressed, you've not grown. And then we have this challenging passage, but really it seems to be speaking of the fact that there are those who are genuinely saved who fail to mature, who fail to grow, who lose out on their inheritance. And we'll see, I believe, that confirmed as we go forward and look at some of these things this morning. And the real danger is that Christians can get to a place where they can stumble, they can almost abandon that relationship, which is what that word fall away implies in verse 6 of chapter 6. But they've stumbled. They've got to a point where, though saved, they've learned to accept and tolerate sin. It's become part of their lives. Now, of course, if you think about the work of Christ on the cross, it's complete. It's one. It's done. It doesn't need to be added to. When Jesus died on the, the cross, all of our sin was paid for, and it was all yet future. You know, we sometimes have this mindset, I think that, you know, when Christ died for our sin, it was everything up until now. And then tomorrow, if we if we make a mistake, well, then we have to kind of repent of that all over again. And it, it, but that's not what we're told in Scripture. Jesus on the cross cries out that, that Greek word to means paid in full. All paid for. All sin. And we're told actually in First John that Jesus is the propitiation or payment in full for our sins. And not only ours, but the sins of the whole world. That means that everybody's sins are paid for. The difference is those that come to Christ and acknowledge and accept that he's done that work. If you don't accept it, it means nothing. It doesn't avail anything to you. But nevertheless, there are those, although that wrath has been covered and paid for, that Christ took that wrath on upon himself, people can still, even as Christians, get to a place where they tolerate sin in their lives. And I'm sure you've seen and you know of Christians. You may even speak of us at times. There things in our hearts that are not right with the Lord. And sometimes we, we get to the stage that we lose that gift of repentance. And I think that's the real warning here, that we should never allow ourselves to get to that place. Because the danger is, if we're in that position, we're going to lose out on inheritance, not our salvation. And the writer here is making this point to these Hebrew believers and uses the example of the, the, the earth in verse 7 and 8. It rains on, on the ground. All ground gets the same kind of rain. Some of it brings forth fruit. That's what we should be doing, but some of it doesn't. And that which doesn't, well, the warning there is that it, it will end up being burnt. Just as Paul speaks about it in 1 Corinthians 3. For every believer, we have the same opportunity to grow and to produce fruit for the Lord. But some will produce the gold, the silver, the precious stones. Some will produce the wood, hay, and the straw. It's a reality. 1 Corinthians chapter 3 makes that really clear. You know there would be no need for that passage if it wasn 't for the fact that there are believers that live carnal lives that live lives for the things of this world they don 't sow to the spirit they 're not putting their treasure in heaven and so that warning that John gives in first John that they they won 't get a full reward they lose out on that inheritance. but the writer goes on to this group specifically says in verse nine but we Beloved, or beloved, we are persuaded better things of you. In other words, come on, I don't want this to apply to you. Oh, As a pastor, of my heart, this wouldn't apply to anybody in this fellowship. That there wouldn't be anybody here that's just pulling up with sin. Living under that burden. When Christ has died to set us free from those things. When Christ has promised us the power through his grace to walk in victory. You know, there's a lot of problems that we experience. And it's a great line in the hymn, isn't it? Oh, what needless pain we bear. On um, Thursday, as we started our study in Isaiah, and we talked about it a bit on Friday at the men's meeting too, it really, really struck me, this opening chapter, there's a line there, verse 5. And Isaiah, after speaking of you know the way that even an animal knows its owner, why don't Israel why don't Israel know their God? And in verse five it says, "Why should you be stricken anymore?" I really, really been playing on my mind over the last few days. Why should any believer be in a place where they struggle with depression or anxiety or challenges that we we, we allow to persist? Scripture says, don't be anxious for anything. But in everything, pray. I I, I love Joe Foch's simplicity. Joe Foch, the pastor of Calvary Chapel in Philadelphia in America. and Hopefully he might be coming over later this year, we'll see, uh, to the Teach the Word conference. But I love the simplicity when he speaks about whatever the problem is, the answer is read the Bible and pray. If you're struggling with depression, anxiety, any issues, any challenges that are impacting your life, read the Bible and pray. And it's like you say, well, I've tried that. Well, then, then do more of it. Pray more, read the Bible more. I mean, it, it's, it's interesting, it's been said many times that within Carver Chapel, there's very little time set aside for counseling. And very little time generally needs to be set aside for counseling. Why? Well, we're not called to be counselors as pastors. The Holy Spirit is the counsellor. And if we bring God's word to you, the counselling comes through God's word. We're told that the, the yoke of Jesus is light. It's not a heavy burden to carry. We're told that those whose minds are stayed on God will be kept in perfect peace. So, you know, if we're in a position where we're not in perfect peace... Well, where does the fault lie? It's not in God. It comes down to, are we seeking him? You know, or are we just giving lip service? that? Well, yeah, I I do read the Bible, I I do pray. Well, then, if you've still got anxiety, if you've still got issues, if you're still struggling, if you're not growing, and you're not, not maturing as a Christian, if there's still sin, well, then just keep praying. And you know what? Look, share with another believer. And let's pray together. But we should be growing. This is what Paul, I say Paul, I keep saying Paul, forgive me if you don't agree with that, but I really believe that Paul is the author of Hebrews, but the writer of Hebrews is saying here that we should be mature. And he's saying, "I'm I, beloved, I'm persuading better things of you and things that accompany salvation. Things that go along with your salvation. And thus we speak. This is what he's been speaking about the whole way. So we're going to pick up now in verse 10. But before we do, let's just bow our hearts. Let's just ask God's blessing, anointing, and clarity on this this portion of Scripture. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you don't want us to stay as we are. That, Lord, you have given us your spirit that we would grow. You told us, Lord, that we should be transformed by the renewing of our minds. Lord, I believe that you don't want any of us to be in a state where we are not in perfect peace. But that we should have our minds stayed on you. Though the problem, as we all know, is there are so many things that compete for our time and our attention. Oh Lord, I pray you remove those distractions. Or at least remove our focus from them. That our focus would be, as this writer later will tell us, that our focus should be upon Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith. So, Lord, bless this time. Give us understanding of these words, these portions of scripture that we studied this morning that we would grow, that we wouldn't stay where we are. We wouldn't tolerate sin in our life. Lord. Why should things be that way? Lord, as as I I said, why do you settle for things as they are? If they're not right, Lord, we know that you have given us this wonderful path to walk by faith. Lord, so now we we pray that you give us the strength and the grace to do it. In Jesus' name, amen. Last week I, I read through, again, that portion of the Jewish New Testament. Um, I just want to start with verse 10 here. Uh, I'm not going to read that again. We'll read in chapter 7 in a minute. I'm going to go back and read uh, the chapter there so we can look ahead. Uh, but just to finish off chapter 6, the writer says, For God is not unrighteous to forget your work and labor of love, which you have shown toward his name, and that you have ministered to the saints and do minister. I love this because it just shows that God cares and God sees the things you've done. When, when you try to serve God out of a sincere heart, and bear in mind, I, I, I genuinely believe that there's a, a suggestion here that that which they had done, even prior to them becoming Christians, God saw that. He saw the intent of their hearts. These Jews that got saved. Because God is not unrighteous to forget what you've done. I I think we have this mindset again sometimes where we've been taught, and I think erroneously so, that when we get to heaven, we'll all be on the same level. And the people who have lived their lives for the Lord and served will stand next to somebody that's lived a very nominal, casual Christian life. But there it won't matter because we'll all be forgiven and it'll be great because we're in God's presence. And probably like me, deep down, you have that kind of feeling, but that's not fair, is it? You know, is it fair that somebody that's given up their life as a missionary and gone overseas and has given up absolutely everything for the Lord and lived in horrible conditions, that when they get to heaven, they're just standing next to somebody that goes to church on Sunday but goes down the pub three nights a week? Is that right? Is that fair? Well, I think this verse is telling us that that's not the way God is going to deal with it. And actually, through Scripture, there is so much that is given to us about rewards. For want of a better expression, there will be a hierarchy in heaven. There will be those that will receive greater blessings and greater honor. There will be those that are there, as it says in 1 Corinthians 3, but by the skin of their teeth, effectively, they'll be saved, yet, zo- yet those by fire. Of course, salvation, again, is that gift of God. But what do we do with it? One of the things Chuck Misleys used to say, and when he was speaking to you know, audiences and groups and, and congregations, he was asked the question, just you know just to you a show of hands, please, who's saved? And obviously a lot of people put their hands up. And he said, great, what have you done with it? I, lo- I love that. I love that question. What have you done with this salvation that's been given to you, this new life? Because bear in mind, it's not just the bread, it's the bread and the cup. The, the bread, of course, speaks about the body of Christ broken for us. It speaks about the wrath of God being poured upon Jesus. But the cup speaks about the new life. These two things go hand in hand. You can't just have the the cup without the bread without the cup. And because we have this new life, there should be fruit from this new life. Now, God is not unrighteous to forget those things that you've done. Verse 11 goes on and says, And we desire that every one of you do show the same diligence to the full assurance of hope unto the end. He's saying, maybe there's some in this group that were reading this letter that weren't quite there yet, that hadn't actually really done things or lived for the Lord or there hadn't been good works they'd done as a result of their salvation. They hadn't ministered to other saints as he alluded to. And so the writer says, you know, we desire that every one of you show the same diligence did the full assurance of hope unto the end that you'd be not slothful. You know, I, I love sloths. I think they're incredible creatures. If you just look at just the way they can just stay so still for such a long period of time and then gradually a slight movement. And then, you know, if you've been to a zoo and you've seen them or any uh, animal park or whatever, you know, and you watch them and I mean, you get bored way quicker than they do. Waiting for that next slight movement. I just think they're amazing creatures. But that's not a great attribute for a Christian. That occasionally you see something. But then you might have to wait a long period of time before you see something else. That's not the way it should be. We should continually be overflowing with the goodness and the grace of God, with the things that He's done for us. We should be just constantly it should be flowing out to us and, and blessing others. That you be not slothful, but followers of them who through faith and patience, guess what? Inherit the promises. See, it's exactly this whole chapter builds on this theme of growing in grace. And the issue is about those who get to inherit the promises. Why? Because they've lived lives separated unto God, they've not lived carnal lives, they've not lost out on that inheritance. The writer's saying, you know, you be like those who have gone on to inherit the promises, that have lived their lives. Even in the early church, there was many that were martyred. Even by the time the book of Hebrews was written, which was very early on, but even by that point, the likes of Stephen and others. I mean, what a great example. I mean, you could almost put Stephen into that equation. Don't be so full Be followers of people like Stephen who through faith and patience, oh boy, did he inherit. What a love he had for the Lord. How does his ministry start? By serving other people. He wasn't up the front leading worship or out preaching or holding evangelistic crusades. He just loved the Lord. And when they said, you know, we need some people to, to do some serving, some layouts of food, some clean up, some of the mess and stuff, yeah, Steve said, I'll, I'll do it. Let me serve God. That would be great. I don't care what it is. I just want to serve God. And so the, the opportunity arises, and he gets to serve, and he's so faithful in that. And guess what? It overflows beyond that. And he can't help himself but, but preach to others and speak to others about the goodness of the grace. And all of a sudden, he has an audience before the Sanhedrin. And he gets to share with them one of the most incredible sermons in the New Testament, as he speaks to them about Jesus Christ, about the way that they, first of all, with Moses had rejected him, and then finally, he was accepted as a deliverer, and he says, you know, Joseph was kind of the same. And, and Jesus, before they get to the conclusion, they don't want to hear it, he's eventually stoned. But as he looks up, he sees there's a reward awaiting him. That's the kind of people we should be following after. Whose faith follow? That phrase we're going to see later in the book of Hebrews. I just want to read to you the paraphrase of those verses. From the Living Bible. Now, the Living Bible was the very first Bible I had um, as a young person. And, uh, it's it's a paraphrase, but I think it's a really helpful paraphrase. Kenneth Taylor, who who wrote it originally, did it for his his own children um, as, as a way of trying to explain scripts to them. So, as he was reading through the Bible, he's trying to break it down, and so he decided to write it out. And uh, it got used in extensively. Billy Graham. Um, was a big fan of his work. Um, so we need to always to refer back to a good source to make sure that. And there's some things that he translates that are not quite there, but there's some things are really helpful. So let me just read these few verses. So I think it's, it's just, it, it just adds clarity. So we just go back to verse 10. He says, For God is not unfair. How can he forget your hard work for him? Or forget the way you used to show your love to him and still do by helping his children? And we are anxious that you keep right on loving others as long as life lasts so that you will get your full reward. Then, knowing what lies ahead of you, you won't become bored with being a Christian nor become spiritually dull and indifferent. But you'll be anxious to follow the example of those who receive all that God has promised them because of their strong faith and patience. I love that. It's a great paraphrase of those verses. Verse 13, for when God made a promise to Abraham because he could swear by no greater, he saw by himself saying, surely blessing I will bless thee and multiplying I will multiply thee. And so after he had patiently endured, he obtained the promise. For men very swear by the greater and an oath for confirmation is to them an end of all strife. Wherein, God willing, more abundantly to show unto the heirs of promise the immutability of his counsel confirmed it by an oath. And that by two immutable things, the two things are the promise and the oath, we'll come back to that in a second, in which it was impossible for God to lie, which I mean, is a great statement in itself, we know that of course, because God is perfect, but it's impossible for God to lie, which is another reason why when God says that in six days he made the heavens and the earth, we don't have to guess at what kind of time frame that was, because it was six days, because God can't lie, and he wrote it with his own finger, so. Verse 18 again, it is uh, impossible for God to lie. We might have a strong consolation who have fled for refuge. What a great expression. Fred, fled for refuge to lay hold upon the hope set before us. That's how we should be living our lives. Like a race that we intend to win. Now you'll probably notice from my physique that racing isn't something in the physical sense that I do a lot of. I'm not, but I am very competitive. I like to win. You know, this is Paul's argument in Corinthians and elsewhere, that that's how we should be living the Christian life. We should be looking to settle to second best. It goes on, the hope set before us in verse 19, which hope we have as an anchor for the soul. See, that which we're aiming for, the knowledge that there is blessing, that there is reward yet to come, that there is an inheritance for us to receive, that should be such a great thing to aim at that it becomes an anchor for our soul to stop us drifting away. He's already talked about the danger and the warning that warned us about drifting. Both sure and steadfast, which endures into that within the veil come back to that as well. Whether the forerunner is entered, even Jesus. Jesus got ahead of us. Made a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. We're going to go into chapter 7 in a second. Let me read you again Kenneth Taylor's paraphrase from the Living Bible of those verses. And it says, building on what we just looked at, for instance, there was God's promise to Abraham. If you want to follow this through, just going to go back to verse 13 and follow down to the end of the chapter in this paraphrase, and you'll get the, the gist. For instance, there was God's promise to Abraham. God took an oath in his own name. And since there was no one greater to swear by, that he would bless Abraham again and again and give him a son and make him the father of a great nation of people. Then Abraham waited patiently until finally God gave him a son, Isaac, just as he had promised. When a man takes an oath. He's calling upon someone greater than himself to force him to do what he's promised or to punish him if he later refuses to do it. The oath ends all argument about it. God also bound himself with an oath so that those he promised to help would be perfectly sure and never need to wonder whether he might change his plans. Verse 18. has given us both his promise and his oath. Two things that we completely, we can completely count on. For it's impossible for God to tell a lie. Now, all those who flee to Him to save them can take new courage when they hear such assurances from God. Now they can know without doubt that He will give them salvation, the salvation He's promised to them. This certain hope of being saved is a strong and trustworthy anchor for our souls connecting us with God himself behind the sacred curtains of heaven, where Christ has gone ahead of us to plead for us from his position as our high priest with the honor and the rank of Melchizedek. Okay. Let's read through chapter 7. I'm going to go to the um, Jewish New Testament we'll read through it in here first, and then we'll go through and see how far we get with the text. So, from beginning of chapter seven, let's read through. Uh, so this Melchizedek King of Shalem, a priest of God, met Abraham on his way back from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. Also Abraham gave him a tenth of everything. Now first of all, by translation his name is King of Righteousness, and then he is also King of Shalem, which means King of Peace There is no record of his father, mother, ancestry birth or death. Rather, like the Son of God, he continues as a priest for all time. Just think how great he was. Even the patriarch Abraham gave him a tenth of the choicest spoils. Now, the descendants of Levi who became high priests, who became priests of commandment in the Torah to take a tenth of the income of the people, that is, from their own brothers despite the fact that they too were descended from Abraham. But melchizedek even though he was not descended from Levi, took a tenth from Abraham. Also he blessed Abraham, the man who received God's promises. And it is beyond all dispute that the one who blesses was higher of a higher status than the one who receives the blessing. Moreover, in the case of the high priest, the, the tenth or the tithe is received by men who die, while in the case of Melchizedek, he's received by someone who is testified to be still alive. One might go even further and say that Levi, who promi- who received who himself received tithes or tents, paid a tenth through Abraham, inasmuch as he was still in his ancestor Abraham's body when Melchizedek met him. Therefore, if it had been possible to reach the goal through the system of the high priest derived from Levi, since in connection with it the people were given the Torah, what need would there have been for another kind of priest than one spoken of as to be compared with Melchizedek and not to be compared with Aaron? For if the system of the Kohanim, or the, the high priest, is transformed, there must of necessity occur a transformation of Torah. The one about whom those things are said belongs to another tribe from which no one has ever served at the altar. For everyone knows that our Lord arose out of Judah, from the tribe of Judah, and that Moses said nothing about this tribe when he spoke about the priesthood, It becomes even clearer if a different kind of priest, one like Melchizedek arises, one who became a priest not by virtue of a rule in the Torah concerning physical descent, but by virtue of the power of an indestructible life. For it is stated, you are a priest or high priest forever to be compared with Melchizedek. Thus, on the one hand, the earlier rule is set aside because of its weakness and inefficiency. For the Torah did not bring anything to the goal. And on the other hand, the hope of something better is introduced, through which we are drawing near to God. What is more, God swore an oath, for an oath was sworn in connection with those who become the priests now. But Yeshua became a priest, a high priest, by the oath which God swore when he said to him, Adonai has sworn and will not change his mind, you are a high priest forever, thus also, this shows how much better is the covenant which Yeshua has become a guarantor. Moreover, the present high priests are, in, uh, are many. Sorry, the priests are many in number because they are prevented by death from continuing office. But because He lives forever, His position as priest does not pass on to someone else, and consequently, is totally able to deliver those who approach God through Him, since He is alive forever. And thus forever able to intercede on their behalf. This is the kind of high priest that meets our need. Holy, without evil, without stain, set apart from sinners, and raised higher than the heavens. One who does not have the daily necessity, like the other high priests, of offering up sacrifices, first for their own sins, and then, and only then for those of the people, because he offered one sacrifice once and for all by offering up himself. For the Torah appoints the high priest and men who have weakness. But the text which speaks about the swearing of the oath, the text written later than the Torah, appoints a son who has been brought to the goal forever. Okay, again, some helpful things in that paraphrase. so let's just go through the, the text again. So we, we were introduced straight away again, verse, seven, uh, verse one of chapter seven. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem or Shelem, again, the idea of peace is in the name, a priest of the Most High God who met Abraham returning from the slaughter of kings and blessed him. To whom also Abraham gave a tenth part of all, being by first interpretation, the king of righteousness, and after that also the king of Salem. This is what Melchizedek's name means which is king and peace, as we said earlier, that he's a king of Jerusalem, but he's also a high priest. And then we're told this bit, which has confused many and has led to all sorts of wild speculations. Without father, without mother, without descent, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but made like unto the Son of God, abides a priest continually. And anyway, I like that. Let me just go back to the way this uh, Jewish New <sighs> Testament translates that, because I think that's quite helpful. Uh, it just says, there is no record of his father, mother, ancestry, birth or death. Rather, like the Son of God, he continues as a priest for all time. And that's the idea. This is something that we're again indebted to Bill Cooper for, as I shared a few weeks ago, that there was, the the, the priesthood of Melchizedek wasn't a hereditary priesthood like the priesthood of the Levites, as that we we get later on. That there's many priests in the Levitical line because they die. And so another one then comes in and then so on and so on. But this priesthood is one that wasn't hereditary. Now we understand, and again from the work that Cooper's done, that Melchizedek was a line of kings and priests that ruled and reigned in Jerusalem for a period of a thousand years prior to the time of um, Israel coming back and entering into the land, by which point um, Jerusalem had been taken over by the Jebusites. But prior to that, this place had been a place of worship to God. And again, there's, uh, if you want to read Bill Cooper's book, it goes into detail about those things. In the letters that we have, they're written by a subsequent king and priest of Jerusalem to one of the Egyptian pharaohs. Uh, the things that come out of that are quite Interesting. So when it says that he was without father, without mother, it doesn't mean that... Uh, Some people said, well, maybe this is Jesus. Or somebody said, well, it could be Shem. It could be all these... Well, we we know the ancestry of Shem, so that doesn't work for a start. You know, And it's certainly not Jesus, because Jesus is, is of the same order of, or, or the same priesthood, This the same kind of... Um, the idea is of being a priest directly to God. God had chosen these kings and priests in Jerusalem back in the day. And just the same way, God has appointed Jesus as king and priest. It wasn't a hereditary thing. And that's, that's all this is saying, without father, without mother. But then we go on to verse 4. Now consider how great this man was to even Abraham, who was the patriarch, Abraham gave a tenth of this tithe of the spoils. And again, I'm just going to jump in and out of the, the Living Bible's translation, or paraphrase here, because it says, you know, see then how great this Melchizedek is, even Abraham. The first and most honored of all of God's chosen people gave Melchizedek a tenth of the spoils he took from the kings he'd been fighting. Verse 5 says, And verily, they that are of the sons of Levi who receive the office of the priesthood have a commandment to take tithes of the people according to the law, that is, of their brethren, though they come out of the loins of Abraham. But he whose descent is not counted from them received tithes of Abraham and blessed him that the promises. Again, I mean, jump to this paraphrase, one could understand why Abraham would do this if Melchizedek had been a Jewish priest. for later on, God's people were required by law to give gifts to help their priests because the priests were their relatives. but Melchizedek was not a relative and yet Abraham paid him. Now' there's four arguments basically presented here. That's the first one. the, the, the second argument that comes in halfway through uh, verse six. He says, but his descendants not counted from, um, the, from them received tithes of Abraham and blessed him that had the promise. The idea is that, um, that Melchizedek placed this blessing upon mighty Abraham. And as everyone knows, a person who has the power to bless is always greater than the person he blesses. And that's exactly what we're told in verse 7 and verse 8. Read on. Uh, so the third argument then is that not only that this Abraham receives this this gives his tithe to Melchizedek. Not only does Melchizedek give this blessing to Abraham. The third thing is the Jewish priests, though mortal, receive tithes. But we are told that Melchizedek lives on. Now, of course, in the sense that this priesthood is a priesthood that never comes to an end. That Jesus is that that, that line is exactly the idea that we have with the the throne. Okay, So in 2 Samuel 7, God makes uh, David this promise of the, the throne, that it will be established forever, that the descendants of David would always be on the throne. Well, of course, there comes a time in Israel's history that there is no king set on the throne. But the throne is eternal, because the throne has been established to be such. And although there was this kind of gap in this period of time, from the time of Zedekiah, the last king of Jerusalem, the crown is taken to Babylon. Zedekiah is taken there, the throne with Nebuchadnezzar. But of course, through the the ministry of Daniel, and Daniel's put in charge of the Magi, and then some five hundred years later or so, the Magi come back and effectively bring the crown back. And they say, "Where is he that has been born king of the Jews?" That that, that royal line hadn't stopped. It was an eternal line for the king. And Jesus now is that, that king who will sit and rule and reign on the throne of David. And in just the same way, this priesthood of Melchizedek hasn't come to an end. When he, he died in the flesh, it, it didn't cease. Jesus ultimately is the one who will be that high priest forever. So the fourth argument Really starting from verse 9. I was going to read from the, the paraphrase again Living Bible. One might even say that Levi himself, the ancestor of all Jewish priests, of all who received tithes, paid tithes to Melchizedek through Abraham. So saying, you know, in a sense, because Levi comes from Abraham and Abraham pays tithes to Melchizedek, effectively you can argue that Levi does the same thing. For although Levi wasn't born yet, the seed from which he came was in Abraham, when Abraham paid tithes to Melchizedek. And now we get to the final argument that's really presented here. If therefore perfection were by the Levitical priesthood, and it goes on, which again read to you, if the Jewish priests and their laws have been able to save us, then why then did God need to send Christ as a priest with the rank of Melchizedek? Because remember, that's, as we're going to see, that's what scripture had prophesied. These verses that are alluded to from Psalms and elsewhere, that today you are my son, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Why would God even speak of that if there was no need to have another priesthood, if the Aaronic priesthood covered it all? But he's saying, no, clearly that that priesthood didn't cover everything. Why then, did God, did God need to send Christ as a priest with the rank of Melchizedek instead of sending someone with the rank of Aaron, the same rank as all other priests had? And when God sends a new kind of priest, his law must be changed to permit it. As we know, Christ did not belong to the priest tribe of Levi, but came from the tribe of Judah, which had not been chosen for priesthood. Moses had never given them that work. Again, in verse 15, so we can plainly see that God's method changed. For Christ, the new high priest, who came with the rank of Melchizedek, did not become a priest by meeting the old requirement of belonging to the tribe of Levi, but on the basis of power flowing from a life that cannot end. And the psalmist points out, uh, points out when he says of Christ that you are a priest forever, with the rank of Melchizedek. And again, this carries on, verse eighteen. For there is a very a disannulling of the commandment going before for the weakness and the unprofitableness thereof. It speaks of the problem that we have with the law. The law cannot make anybody perfect. It can't make us right with God. The only thing the law does that's perfect to show us that we are are perfectly incapable of keeping the law. Again, we read, yes, the old system of priesthood based on family lines was cancelled because it didn't work. It was weak and useless for saving people. Now we see examples, of course, with the likes of Eli and his children who were just so ungodly. And yet they inherited this role. The system didn't work. Verse 19 of 15, it never made anyone really right with God, but now we have a far better hope. And this, this is just lovely. This is the hope that we have. Bringing in this better hope. For Christ makes us acceptable to God, and now we may draw near to Him. And this is exactly what Christ has done. The law could never make us acceptable to God. It, all all the, the blood of the, the bulls and goats did was atone for sin. But as we're going to see, it can never deal with the problem of the conscience. So again, to read a paraphrase of verse 20. God took an oath that Christ would always be a priest, although he never said that of other priests, only to Christ he said, the Lord has sworn and will never change his mind. You are a priest forever. You see, so the, the priesthood of Christ is an eternal priesthood with the rank of Melchizedek. God isn't going to go back on this. This is established. This is eternal. Because of verse 22, effectively, because of, of God's oath, Christ can guarantee forever the success of this new and better arrangement. Under the old arrangement, there had to be many priests, so that when the older one dies off, the system could still be carried on by others who took their places. That's what we said a a moment ago. It's a hereditary system. But this man, speaking now of Jesus, because he continueth ever, has an unchangeable priesthood. Paraphrase, but Jesus lives forever and continues to be a priest so that no one else is needed. And I love the fact that there isn't anybody. No, we don't need a man. We don't need any other go-betweens now. You don't have to go and confess your sins to a priest. Jesus is there. And we go straight to him. There is one mediator between God and man, and that is Jesus. And I love verse 12. It's one of those verses I'm sure you have. If you underline verses, this is one that needs to be underlined, isn't it? Wherefore, he is able to save them to the uttermost. To come unto God by Him, seeing He ever liveth to make intercession for them. What a fantastic statement! I just love the word. You can't improve on that wording. I mean, I'll, just, I'll give you the paraphrase anyway. But you know, He is able to save completely all who come to God through Him, since He will live forever. He will always be there to remind God that He has prayed, paid for their sins with His blood. Isn't that what it says? What a great statement! That he can save to the uttermost. Well, I thank God for that, because you don't get to see the depths of my heart, and thankfully I don't get to see the depths of yours either. But Jesus does. And I'm so glad that we have statements like this in the Bible. That we can have this incredible confidence in him, in the work that he's done. You know, it's all about his grace. We're singing songs earlier about that grace. But he's able to save him to the uttermost, that do lots of good works. and No, 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 it doesn't say that, does it? To try really hard. No, it doesn't say that either. To simply come to God by him. See, salvation is so simple for us because it was so hard for God in that he had to give up his son, and for Jesus that he had to pay such an incredible price. But all we have to do is to come to God by him. And then seeing that he ever lives to make intercession. He's always there, he'll always be before the throne. Uh, you know, we, we read in Job how Satan goes before
1: God and tries
0: to pull Job down. But we have one before the throne now. If Satan ever tries to bring any accusation against you or I before the throne, well, we have another one there already. At the right hand of God who ever lives to make intercession. It was always there. Any claim that Satan brings against your eye, Jesus comes and says, no, it's been paid for. Can't have that. It's been paid for by my blood. When Satan comes and says that this person has lustful thoughts or this person has a bad attitude, they've got hatred in their heart, they've got bitterness, he comes and brings that. Because we're told in Revelation that Satan is accuser of the brethren. we, We should expect these things. But when he comes, Jesus says, no, no, you can't have that. It's been paid for by my blood. That one's mine. You can't have them. You can't touch them. Well, what about this? What about they said that? You, sorry, it's been paid for. Already covered. Everything that you ever say or do or think is covered by the blood of Jesus. Does that excite you? Does that please you? Isn't that incredible? That yeah, you know, it, it doesn't give us a license to sin. And of course, none of this is saying that we've got the, the liberty then to go out and do whatever we want. In one sense, yes, we have, but the the reality is that there's such a gratitude in our hearts that this the more we understand the liberty we have, the more we want to live for Jesus Christ, don't we? I've become so overwhelmed by what he's accomplished for us. For such a high priest became us, who is holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners, and made higher than the heavens. I'm just in the paraphrase. He is therefore exactly the kind of high priest we need. For he is holy and blameless, unstained by sin, undefiled by sinners, and to him has been given the place of honor in heaven. Who needeth not daily as the high priest to offer sacrifices, first for his own sins and then for the people's, for this he did once when he offered up himself. He, he never needs to. Daily blood of animal sacrifices that other priests did to cover first their own sins and then the sins of the people. For he finished all sacrifices once and for all when he sacrificed himself on the cross. And then our final verse for the chapter For the law maketh men high priests which have infirmity. But the word of the oath which was since the law maketh the son. Is consecrated forevermore. Paraphrase, under the old system, even the high priests were weak and sinful men who could not keep from doing wrong. But later, God appointed by his oath a son who is perfect forever. Well, I hope that stirs your heart because it certainly stirs mine. Let's bow our hearts now and thank him. Father, we praise you for what you have done And, and Lord, the, the, the argument that we've been looking at in these chapters is that we should mature as Christians. Well, what a great foundation, Lord, for us to build on. What a great springboard, Lord, to go from this point and say, Lord, whatever has happened in our life up until this point, whatever things we have tolerated, whatever things we have allowed, whatever things we've not done that we should have done, Lord, now is the time to say, enough. That, Lord, we want to grow in grace We want to be your people, set apart for you. And not not just to do things for you, not to do works, but just to love you first and foremost. For all that you have done. Knowing that every minute of every day you are before the throne and you are able to make, and you do make intercession for us. That there is nothing that can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. So, Lord, stir our hearts. Give us a greater desire to live godly in Christ Jesus in these days that remain. And, Lord, whatever has been up until this point, it's now in the past. And, Lord, nothing is able to separate us from your love. Nothing is so powerful that Satan can use it against us because, Lord, your blood is sufficient. Your work is complete. You are a high priest who will not die, who will not get to the point of ceasing office, but you are forever there in this role of high priest appointed by your father, by our father. We thank you for these things, Lord. Again, please stir our hearts and excite us and give us a great desire and the grace to walk by faith, responding with lives of worship, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Okay, may God richly bless you through this week. Read ahead, chapter 8, next week, Lord willing. Uh, If we're not raptured first, may God bless you.